chose these subject, this subject called to uh, holiness and the cost of holiness for this reason. Over the years, I've been involved in a ministry, and I always get these questions that come to me. Uh, how, many, uh, how many little drinks can I have at a party? To, and still, and how, how, what kind of movies can I go to? Uh, what kind of dances can I enjoy? Uh, what, can I, what kind of clothes can I wear? And so on and so forth. Get these questions periodically. I really think they're the wrong questions. I'm not here to answer that question, and yes, I am here to answer that question, but I'm not getting into the details of this. But I've often wondered, are we not, we're asking the wrong question, aren't we? The question should be, how close can I walk with God? Rather than ask the question, how far can I get to the outer edge, you know? We drink the poison of the culture in which we live. How close to that outer edge can I get and, and still have the respect of the culture of my church? Or, or still have respect in the ministry? Or still have respect as a Sunday school teacher? Or still have respect as a person, as an example in the body of Christ? That, the question should be, how close to the Lord can I walk? And what impact does that walk have on the people that are around me? And I sometimes think that we as Christians in the body of Christ, we kind of take for, for granted what really happened at the cross. At communion, we're to remember that Jesus Christ died for us, gave himself for us, and yes, we may, uh, yeah, that's important. I know it intellectually. I can work my way through it theologically. But really, what really happened there? So I want to talk to you about, first of all, the necessity of the atonement, the importance of it. I think we all know intellectually what it was. And when Peter preached his first sermon in the church age on, in Acts chapter 2, he said this in verse 22 and 23. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You see, it was the good pleasure of God to send Christ to the cross. The holiness of God demanded justice. And for you and I to become a believer in Christ ever since the day that Adam fell, it was necessary in the plan that there would be a sacrifice, there would be judgment, for that sin. And as a result, of course, all men died physically and all men died spiritually. But it was the pleasure of God to send him to the cross. Isaiah 53.10 tells us that. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. Pleased to crush him. Galatians chapter 1 verse 4 talks about the Son who gave himself for our sins Hebrews 12, verse 1 says, it was for the joy 
that he endured the cross. You and I are that joy, if you know Christ. It is also the love of God. You know the verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, God just couldn't come and love us. Even though he did, he just, his love was blocked by his holiness. His love was blocked. Holiness manifested itself in righteousness and justice. It just couldn't come through that barrier. The penalty had to be paid. In Romans 3, 24 and 25, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because of the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. A public sacrifice for the Old Testament and New Testament saints to see. Well, let's go back and take a look at that sacrifice. Jesus anticipated the cross. He's the only person that came, was born to die. We die, but that's not why we came into the world. We came to live. And hopefully, you put your faith and trust in Christ, and you have another hope, not only physical life, but eternal life. Jesus instructed his disciples about the necessity of his death in the middle of his three-year ministry. In October or November of 28 A.D., we read in Matthew, you also can find a parallel passage in the other two synoptics in Mark and Luke. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests, scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. Mark says he spoke openly. Therefore, teaching was not veiled, opaque, or obscure. His teaching was flat out understandable. Christ's teaching was teaching about his death was done repeatedly. He taught his disciples in Mark 9, 31, and the original language has its imperfect. He continually taught his disciples and said to them, the Son of Man is, going, is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise the third day. Taught and said are continually repeated. This was not a silent subject thrown in now and then uh, haphazardly. John portrays Jesus as anticipating the hour as early as his first miracle at Cana when he said, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. John 12, 27, he said, My soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. John 13, verse 1, Jesus, knowing his hour had come, he would depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. On the last journey of Jesus to Jerusalem, there was ominous feeling among the disciples on their last journey. Mark puts it this way. They were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed as they followed. They were afraid. They took the 12 aside, and Jesus took the 12 aside and began to tell them things that would happen. And again, he repeated, he's going to a cross. I mean, they could sense it. 
They could sense there was something going on in the mind of Jesus. He was walking ahead with a purpose, I believe, and they sensed there was a purpose. And they were afraid. Then he gets to Gethsemane. For that, let's turn to Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 39. Matthew 26, verse 36. Some things have already happened. Lazarus has been sick. Thomas says, you know, let's go and die with him. They anticipated his death. In Luke 19, as he marched down into the Kidron Valley, and they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, he gets to the city and he weeps over the city. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I've been there several times, and every time I stand on the Mount of Olives and look over the Kidron Valley, you can see most of Jerusalem setting on a hill. And I often think, and I have always thought, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You haven't got a clue what lies ahead of you. You've been through 84 different invasions up till now. you got one coming that's going to be the bloodiest of all, where the blood will flow to the horse's bridle in that valley. Jesus knew that. And then he also, he had to hide the supper where they're going to have the last supper from the disciples. So they say, where are we going to have the last supper? And he hid it because he didn't want any interruptions because he knew he's going to be betrayed. So he says, you go down into town and follow this and find this colt. Remember that story? Now in the Garden of Gethsemane, we have the setting. Jesus came to them or with them to the place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. He took with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and praying, said, Oh, my father, it's possible. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The Passover was complete. This took place prior to midnight. The high priestly prayer of John 17 has already been offered. Jesus and his 11 disciples pass out of the north gate, cross the Kidron Valley, and come to this little garden called Oil Press, Gethsemane. The atmosphere surrounding this garden must have been heavy like a fog hanging over them and the city which killed the prophets. I've had the privilege to go into rooms where a saint is dying and the atmosphere is heavy. The family standing around, the one who's about to enter heaven, and everybody's, you can sense it. Not a lot of joking going on. Not a lot of kidding. They sensed it. There's no record that Jesus ever laughed. And we've often discussed that in groups. But we do read of his weeping and his soul being grieved. Now, I understand that too. I'm sure Jesus had a sense of humor, and they probably did chuckle now and then. But the atmosphere of Jesus was a man of sorrow. 
Years ago, my wife's folks lived in Barstow, California, the Garden of the Earth. It isn't really if you've been there, it's a desert. And uh, they only lived 150 miles from Las Vegas. And we were visiting there, and uh, we attended church Sunday morning. My father-in-law is a pastor, and we attended his church, and he wanted us to stay for the evening service, and maybe I'd have the message. And normally I don't turn those down, but Faith and I wanted to see Vegas. We didn't tell them that. We just said we needed to get home early. So we drove to Vegas, 150 miles, and we got there. We walked in one casino, and we walked out, and we said, what in the world are we doing here? It really upset my own soul as I saw the gambling, and I saw the advertisements, and I saw the advertisements for all the filth. I'm not saying you're a sinner if you go there. I'm just saying, for me, what am I doing here? I passed up an opportunity to preach to come here. My soul was really uneasy. Don't you think that's what it was with Jesus in this world? Don't you think when he walked around and saw the crud that's going on? And it was all there. I mean, we don't have... We don't have uh, the privilege of being the most crud in the world. It's always been there. Roman Empire was not exactly a holy fundamentalist place. It's hard for us to relate to a perfect, innocent, and holy man who sees and senses sin and its results around him as he healed the deaf, blind, lame, Raise the dead, all because of sin. He said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest would send out labors into his harvest. Where are the, where are the people witnessing for the holiness and righteousness of God? Where are the people? Where the Pharisees aren't doing it, the priests aren't doing it. Where are these labors? I got 12 here, and one I can't even trust. He's going to betray me. He truly was a man of sorrow. Verse 36 says, Then he came with them to the place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go and pray. I'll lead eight of you to guard the gate. I'll take the three with me into the garden. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Peter, James, and John are there. And he says, sit here. And he went further. Luke says about a stone's throw away. Listen to these words from the synoptics. He began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Matthew 26, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Luke says he knelt down and prayed and Matthew says he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed. He kneeled down and then he fell on his face to the ground. That's pressure. There's a fulfillment of prophecy in Psalm 22, 6, but I'm a worm and no man. I'm a worm. The word that uh, 
is used for prayer in Matthew 26, 36 is not the usual word for prayer. The normal word is eukamai. This is actually pros eukamai, which is a in, which is an intensification of the word to pray. You know there are times when only direct communication with God will work. There are times in our life in crisis and heavy pressure that only getting alone and praying directly to God will work, and this is one of those times. We have to remember that Jesus Christ is 100% God, but he's 100% man also. And as one theologian said, we never see more the manhood, the humanity of Christ, more than we see him in the garden. Truly, he is man. From the very first cry to the very miracles that he committed, Jesus had voluntarily laid aside the independent use of his attributes and relied as a man wholly upon God the Father and the Holy Spirit so that he could say, I don't say anything, I don't do anything but what God directs me. I am totally controlled by God, the Father and the Spirit. I don't say anything apart from them. But he was tested in all ways like we are, apart from sin. He went through all the temptations. He was victorious in all of them. He had every human weakness. He was thirsty. He was tired. He was hungry. He had all of those feelings apart from sin. But the greatest test of all comes here in the garden. Because here, he who doesn't deserve death, he's had a righteous life, He is here to die, as Philippians tells us. He's here to die, not only death, but the death of the cross. He's not only doesn't deserve death, but he's going to face a spiritual death, separation from God, where he is going to be identified with our very sins and pay them in our place. Here is unfallen man dying. It was he who had no experience of dying. Not only is he going to die, but he's going to face the most cruel acts of humanity. Undeserved. He was beaten within an inch of his life. People spend a lot of time on that, but there's only 12 verses in the synoptics on his physical beating because whereas that is important... The real important thing is what happened on that cross. Here is unfallen man identifying with fallen humanity. He had already experienced the betrayal of Judah. He will experience the desertion of the eleven, denial by Peter, six illegal trials, the rejection of his nation, the abuse of the Romans, the pain of the cross, and most of all, he will experience the wrath of a holy God against sin. Something I think we've all forgotten at times, right? One commentator put it this way, he filled the silent night with his crying and watered the cold earth with his tears, more precious than the dew of Hermon or any moisture next to his own blood that ever fell on God's earth since creation. Now we listen to his prayers. 
He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed and saying, Oh, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but you will. The term cup is like baptism and the word road. It is a figure of death and it's traced upon the cup to the cup of the Lord's Supper. Take this cup in remembrance of me. A lot of guys, people go, don't we? I always tell people before you take communion, you better stop and think and be honest. Are you, you better think about this. Are you really truly a believer or not? For if you're taking this service and you're phony as a lead nickel, then that judgment that he took is coming to you forever. Be honest here. But I can't think of a better place and a better time to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and repent of your sin than a communion service, can you? What an evangelistic tool we have in our hands. The cup represents the agony in a part of Jesus can only be explained in the anticipation of divine condemnation of sin. The cup is used for blessing in the Old Testament in Psalm 23. My cup runneth what? You can talk back to me. Over, right. I know you're not Pentecostal, but you can answer questions. At least unless things have changed. One thing's changed, I can't hide behind the pulpit here. <laughs> it's a nice piece of furniture, but you can't hide behind it. I like to hide behind it. I, they start throwing things, I can duck. <laughs> Psalm 51. Awake, awake, stand, O Jerusalem. You have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. In other words, the cup was there. I picture it as a two-handed cup. And our sins are in that cup. And he took it and he identified himself with our sins even though he himself had never sinned. And he bore the judgment of our sin in himself. So that I, who have placed my faith and trust in him, will never experience five seconds Oh, hell. He cries out, Oh, my Father. Intensifies the intimacy of Jesus with his Father. Is it possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, Jesus didn't wonder if avoiding the cross was a possibility. He stated unequivocally through his ministry, he came to die. In John 10, 17 and 18, therefore my father loves me. Why? Because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down to myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. And every Easter we get these medical reports, what caused Jesus to die? You know what caused him to die? Our sin. Nobody took the life from him. No physical organ failed. He voluntarily gave his life. Nobody takes it from me. 
And then besides that, I always like this, he shouted out, it is finished. That's not the voice of a dying man. He didn't say, it's finished. No. It's finished. It's over. What Jesus was asking, if there were any other way than the cross in Father's redemption plan. At the very moment, his will is distinguished from the Father's will, Christ submits to the will of the Father. This was a testing, and there was no sin. Plus, the writer of the Hebrews makes it very clear in chapter 5, verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him who's able to save him from death and hurt heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He is a man anticipated the worst possible conditions. You know what that's like. You've seen people or you yourself have had to anticipate some ugly surgery. And the kind you don't know what's going to happen. I had a brother-in-law who faced surgery, supposed to be five hours, lasted ten. Yeah, he seemed pretty peaceable about it, but you could always tell that anticipation was there. Matthew 26, 45 said, after he had prayed, he came to his disciples. Boy, they're alert. We've been praying for you, Lord. What did they say? He said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour's at hand. You guys don't have a clue what's going on. And the Son of Man is being betrayed in the hands of sinner. The Lord was strengthened by the trial, and he faced his betrayer, the trials and the suffering as a lamb before the slaughter. He faced the test of anticipation. And now, he is meek as a lamb going to the slaughter. Think that little sheep walking up that steps to have his life taken from him has any clue what's going to happen? No. But Jesus knew. But he was like a sheep going to the slaughter. Matthew 27, 28, next chapter. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting a crown of thorns on him, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. They knelt down before him, mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Spat on him, took the reed, began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took a scarlet robe off him and put his own garment back on him, and they led him away to crucify him. And they were coming out. They found a man, a serene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. The judicial, that was the physical. Now the judicial, it's essential to note that Jesus would not die a natural death. He would not die an accidental death, nor would he die by an assassin. 
Jesus had to be counted with the transgressors, and he was. Look at that rebel rouser. On one trip to Israel, our guide said he was not a believer, and he, so we asked him what he thought about Jesus. He said, I believe Jesus was a rebel rabbi. That's what they think. He tr betrayed the nation, and he was against the Roman Empire, so he had to die. Isaiah 53, therefore I'll allot him a portion with the great. He'll divide the booty with the strong because he poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many. It was providentially arranged by God that he would be tried before the highest judicial power in the world. The Roman judge found him innocent. It became clear that Jesus did not die for a crime he committed. Jesus was not beheaded, but crucified on a Roman cross, which was reserved for the scum of the earth. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So Paul wrote in Galatians 3.13. When you look at the Christ, uh, the cross alone, Jesus was nailed to the cross at 9 o'clock. It was the third hour when they crucified him, so tells Mark. Mark also tells us that there was a charge, king of the Jews, ordered by Pilate. And we take a look at the seven sayings of Christ on the cross. The first utterance was, Father, Forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Father. That's a term of intimacy, isn't it? Father. Years ago, I had a son who came home from college, first semester, came home Thanksgiving, and he found a little dolly at the school. He brought her home with him. And she hops out of the car and she says, hi, Dad. That didn't go over too big. So then my son hops out of the car and I said, you and I got to have a talk. And I said, the father, dad stuff has to go. She is not my, I am not her father and she's not my daughter-in-law. You don't go around calling people father. In fact, you're not supposed to call anybody father. No man, no religious person. According to the Bible, if I read it correctly. It's a privilege to be called father by your children and to call your own father father, right? That's a privilege. It's, an, it's a term of intimacy. And so when... Jesus calls God the Father, Father. That's a term of fellowship. It's a term of intimacy. The second time he talks on the cross, found in Luke 23, verse 42, he says, to the thief, truly, truly, I say to you, you shall be with me in, where? Paradise. The third utterance of the cross is, found in John 19, verse 26, 27, where he takes care of a family situation, and he says to John, 
the disciple, he says, uh, woman, behold your son. Jesus is in total control of the situation, beaten within an inch of his life. But on the cross, he has total 100% capacity of his intellect, which is perfect. He said, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And John writes, from that hour on, the disciple took her into his own household. He raised Mary, he took care of Mary as well as he did his own mother. Kind of interesting. We, uh, when I got to uh, Hampton, Nebraska, 35 people, there wasn't a lot to do, so I decided, you know what, I, I need to add to the ministry here. So I went to the, the uh, rest home in our town, and I said, do you guys have a time where somebody could teach a word here? Uh, you know, sing a few songs and just have a Bible lesson. Normally, prior to this time, <clears throat> I'd have found somebody else at Mission Road in the church that would do that for me. Because that's, that's not my favorite thing to do. Somebody said, would you like to, your church like, and, and they did, would your church like to have a service in our rest home? And I would say, surely I'll find somebody. But we got involved in this. And, and uh, there are times I'm getting kind of busy, and it takes a morning almost, and I, I tell Faith, you know, maybe this is something we ought to drop. But we can't do it because these people, along with myself, some are younger than me, believe it or not, some of these have one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel. And they need to hear the gospel. One old gentleman said, you can't believe how hard it is to get the word of God in this place. One lady told us, this is the only church I have. Other churches are piping in music, piping in this. This is, this is a ministry. One side issue, my, our daughter works there. And one lady tells her, her that, you know, I may have a new career. She says, I would go, I'd walk miles to hear your dad sing. So when I make my first eight track, I'll let you guys know and you can have one. Father. And then at the sixth hour, he makes another utterance. My God, my God. Notice the change here. Father to God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's his prayer. For he was a sin bearer. He was identified with our sins. And he paid that price. God paid that price. The God-man paid that price. The Son of God paid that price. Having not seen crucifixions, we've seen beheadings, unfortunately. We've not seen a crucifixion in person. That's bad enough. But for the Son of God to, be, to make the payment for a sin that we could be freed from sin have power over sin by 
placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Part of our salvation is repenting from our sin, isn't it? Isn't part of our salvation saying, I don't want any more of the kind of life I've been living? I don't want to live any more like that. Why in the world now when you're saved would you want to live like that? God not only separated us and sanctified us and made us one with Christ in Christ, but now he is also interested in some personal holiness in our lives. Where is it? It seems to me as the culture goes down, the church is just a, almost comes down in parallel fashion, doesn't it? Instead of staying up here, we're coming down like it. We're talking about divorce rate some time ago with a group of pastors. And the divorce rate in Russia during the 70 years of communism was one-tenth of uh, one-tenth of one percent. That doesn't sound right. 99.9% remain married, only one-tenth of one percent divorced. I'd hate to think what it is. And I'm not talking about liberal neo-evangelical churches. I'm talking about churches of our stripe, how often this occurs. When you say, I do, it means what? I do. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. And if you get into a problem, then sit down and with God's help, work it out. You have, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, according to, to the Bible, you have everything you need to live a life of holiness. Each one of you, if you're a believer in Christ. You have, enough, you have enough in the Word of God, the indwelling Holy Spirit, that you can work out the problems. First of all, don't let them get there. Handle it sooner. Then he said, the sixth utterance was, or the fifth utterance, I am thirsty. This is not the same wine er, earlier, which was given to dead in the pain. The sixth utterance was, it is finished. It's over. It's over. He paid the price once and for all. Once and for all. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Your sins have been taken care of till the day you die. Or the Lord comes to meet us in the air. Now, the first utterance was, Father, forgive them. The seventh other utterance is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Fellowship was broken in the middle. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus speaks of God as his Father in the gospel 170 times. Not once in all the other passages do we find that he addresses any prayer to God, except here. Jesus' relationship to God is not uh, paternal, or is paternal here, not judicial anymore. Pink says about this cry, my God, my God, it was a cry of distress, not of distrust. Spurgeon said it shows a manhood in its weakness, but manhood in revolt. 
that Jesus Christ as a man never wavered, though he was sifted like wheat. S. Lewis Johnson said he turned to his God, and with the words of the Holy Scripture given to him by God, he offers his petition to one who appears to have forsaken him, to have forgotten him. He implicates his God in his dereliction, and in so doing, he gains release. Soon he is saying, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. When he says he was forsaken, Jesus was not dismissed from the Trinity. This separation was not a division between divinity and humanity of the person of Christ. This was not a split between the Father and His Son. A judge still loves His Son when He has to judge Him. Jesus knew this was a judicial judgment from God. For the Bible says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ died for our sins once for all. John MacArthur said, On the cross, God treated Jesus as if he lived our lives with all our sin so that God then could treat us as if we lived Christ's life of pure holiness. Millard Erickson said, The idea that Christ's death is a sacrifice offered in payment for penalty of sins. It is accepted by the Father as a satisfaction in the place of the penalty due to us. Another author said, the notion of a substitutionary sacrifice was widely attested in Scripture. It means that Christ died in the place of sinners. The perfect obedience of Christ required from his creatures, Jesus fully gave. <laughs> in the bearing of the penalty of human sin as our substitute, he made full payment to God for all our failures and misdeeds. So what does this mean? If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, he's to be put to death, and you hang him on a tree. Deuteronomy 21, 22. Guilt demanded punishment. Aren't you glad we don't get what we deserve? Aren't you glad that of grace? I, I know I am. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And I'm just glad that all of my weaknesses and all of my sin and everything that I am has been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ once and for all. And the last thing I need and the most thing I need to do is to continue to keep that strong within my life. Romans 1.32, and although they knew the ordinance of God, those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. One of the things I enjoy about the ministry uh, in Hampton is a couple mornings a week on, on an average, I, I go downtown and I sit with a group of old curmudgeons like myself. Uh, guys that I grew up with. Bunch of retired farmers and some new ones in there, and uh, they talk about the price of corn, the price of beans, who's done harvesting, and all those good things of which uh, I don't have a lot of interest, but I sit there through it. 
So it's my privilege to say, well, you know, the Lord says in the Bible, quiet. Or Jesus says that quiet. There are certain things that they, once in a while I get an opportunity to really share my faith. And one guy was telling me that he taught Sunday school. And I said, well, what are you teaching? Well, I, I, he didn't want to tell me. And I said, you mean to tell me you're teaching Sunday school and you don't even want to tell me what you're teaching? He said the book of Judges. And I thought that's really strange for the church out of which you came. And he said, I don't understand judges, all this killing and all that. I don't, I don't understand how that God is love. So I told him, you know what the problem is? You don't understand the holiness of God. You have got to understand that God is holy. He is a God of love. But the basic bottom line essence of God is his holiness. Isaiah says, the angels, the cherubim shouted out, holy, holy, holy. Not love, love, love. He cannot love us until justice has been done. We all are worthy of death. God satisfied that or Christ satisfied that on the cross. He pointed Jesus Christ as our substitute, and Jesus satisfied the holiness of God, propitiation. The Old Testament blood sacrifice is interposed between God and the sinner, and if viewed of it, the wrath of God is turned aside. The animal died, God could turn aside. And they sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat for another year. But the blood of Jesus Christ satisfied the holiness of God so that I could be free, liberated from the law. Not to do my own thing, but to serve him. That's what holiness ought to do for us. It ought to remember when we look at the death of Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to God. The removal of the hostility is God. We've been restored to peace with God, harmony, and favor. Why do we want to mess that up? Why do I want to go in some shadowy place and mess it up? Am I not called to be a light? And one of the ways to do it is to be, to walk with him as close as you can. How will this glorify God in light of all he's done for me? We talk about salvation kind of glibly, don't we? We talk about, yes, I'm saved and I know it and I'll sing the songs. Saved, saved, saved by his blood divine. How many people at your work know you really walk with God? How many people at the, where you uh, hang out know you really walk with God? How many of your friends, when you get together, know you really walk with God? What kind of example are you to people who are under you? As a Sunday school teacher, as a person in the church, 
You know, every one of you that are a believer in this body here this morning, somebody's watching you. You'd be surprised. Every now and then I hear somebody say to me, well, we were really watching you to see if you were really real. Really? Kind of scary, quite frankly. And I've blown it. I'll be the first to admit it. I've blown it many times. And I feel bad about it. And I confess my sin to the Lord. And I say, I thank you, Lord. You're a sovereign, holy God. You can me- fix up what I mess up. But I don't want to mess it up. <clears throat> let, your son, you let your light shine before him. Let's stand before prayer, for prayer. Our Father, the Bible calls it a price, the cost. Forgive us for treating it as a favor. Forgive us for the nonchalant attitude we've had toward your cross. Help us to awake as believers in Jesus Christ, led by the Spirit of God, guided by the Holy Spirit, found in your word to live a day, Lord, in which you are glorified. Help us to face our tests, our trials, our blessings, our joys, everything in earth as an opportunity, as an opportunity to let your light shine a pure and holy way. The world has yet to see, Father, a person walking with you. We want to be so much like the world that we forget our object as believers. Help us in our attitudes, our motivations. Help us, Lord, to become like you. Speak to our hearts, Father, through the Spirit of God, through his word, we pray in Jesus' name.